us. We should pitch the tents. This is ridiculous, man. Luke, you're getting soaked. Did you hear that? No, I didn't hear anything. Come on. Here's a Japanese sandman Sneaking on with a duo Just an old second Hello and welcome to the Good Friends of Jackson Elias, a regular podcast about Call of Cthulhu, horror films, and horror gaming in general. I'm Paul Fricker. I'm Scott Norwood. And I'm Matt Sanderson. And this episode we're talking about the 2017 horror film, The Ritual. But first, the news. It's that time again. The UK's equivalent to Gen Con. UK Games Expo. It's back. It, and it is getting there as well. It's, it's quite a few thousand people every year well, now. What was it last year? They, they said something like over the course of the entire weekend, it was 20,000 people. Really? It? Yeah. Jeez. Okay. So it's a yeah. third, third the size of Gen Con then. But for UK, that's pretty incredible. Yeah. UK Games Expo taking place on Friday the 1st of June through to Sunday the 3rd of June. Some, if not all of us, might actually be there, running games um, and and generally milling about. So if you're there, particularly on the Friday, do seek us out. And now, the Lovecraftian word of the week. Our word is... Preternatural. More syllables than you can shake a stick at. It's an adjective. One, existing or occurring out of the ordinary course of nature. Exceptional or abnormal. Two, being outside of nature. I like to think of myself as being preternatural in that second instance then. I keep nature outside, I remain inside. (laughs) You mean you keep the doors and windows shut? And with curtains drawn, yeah. Right. (laughs) Like all good role players. (laughs) <laughs> that evil shining day star can stay outside damn it i i don't know about you two but i was really struggling to think what the difference between preternatural and supernatural were and it wasn't helped when i looked at a few, you know, a few online dictionaries and saw that you know a lot of people sort of considered them to be synonyms for each other um, and it wasn't until i started looking at theological definitions that i i, I actually found out there was a difference so would that be an ecumenical matter, Scott? It would. <laughs> uh, the difference is that in theology, supernatural means, you know, above nature, I mean, totally outside the, the natural world, and is purely the domain of God. Whereas preternatural is, is somewhere in between. You know, it was defined as suspended between the mundane and the miraculous. So would this be in the same domain as paranormal? Uh, paranormal, oh god, now you're asking. Um, I'd consider paranormal to be, yeah, perhaps, perhaps related to preternatural, but uh, paranormal doesn't have the same theological connotations that preternatural does. Maybe it's between uh, preternatural and supernatural. So you've got a sliding scale going gradually upward. I, well, I'd, I'd say it's probably below preternatural, so you're taking the divine side of it out completely. So if we're to take it that supernatural has to do with the domain of God, are Lovecraft's monsters more preternatural than supernatural? 
they're definitely not supernatural according to the strict theological definition because well i i mean this almost goes back to that that interview we had with sandy peterson a while back where he was talking about the fact that you know he didn't take lovecraft's creations to be a challenge to his faith in any way because he saw them as being uh, these gods as being alien entities and as a result, if you, you see them like that and you, you don't see them as, as gods, then, yeah, they, they're definitely not supernatural. I mean, you might call them preternatural, you might call them just unnatural. Yeah, they're, they're certainly outside our conception of nature. Not such a widely used word, but definitely a Lovecraftian one, featuring, perhaps ten times on the Lovecraftometer, as preternatural and three times as preternaturally. Let's take a look at how the man himself used the word preternatural. From the festival. Amid these hushed throngs, I followed my voiceless guides, jostled by elbows that seemed preternaturally soft and pressed by chests and stomachs that seemed abnormally pulpy, but seeing never a face and hearing never a word. And from the shunned house. Long-winded, statistical, and drearily genealogical as some of the matter was, there ran through it a continuous thread of brooding tenacious horror and preternatural malevolence which impressed me even more than it had impressed the good doctor. And from At the Mountains of Madness. Their preternatural toughness of organisation and simplicity of natural wants made them peculiarly able to live on a high plane without the more specialised fruits of artificial manufacture, and even without garments except for occasional protection against the elements. And now on to our main topic, the ritual. Well, last episode, if you remember back that far, we talked about survival horror, and we thought it would be interesting to follow up with a discussion of uh, an example of the genre. So this is a British production uh, with an American director, David Bruckner. Uh, Bruckner had previously made segments for a few portmanteau films. He'd never done a feature film on his own. So he worked on uh, The Signal from 2007, which I highly recommend. Sort of weird science fiction horror film. A bit along the lines of The Crazies, perhaps a bit along the lines of Stephen King's Cell. He did a segment for the original VHS film and also for the rather exceptional portmanteau film from a few years ago, Southbound. The screenplay was adapted by Joe Barton, who was probably best known for his adaptation of the Swedish TV programme Humans. Barton adapted it from the 2011 novel by Adam Neville. And yeah, we'll talk a little bit about the novel later on. The novel won the 2012 August Ehrlich Award, and yeah, I, I think it's, it's far superior to the film. You can see this film if you're in the UK on Amazon Prime, and it was released to cinemas here in 2017 probably easier to access for most people on netflix because of the weird distribution uh, deal that netflix got they despite the fact that it's a british film it's basically available on netflix everywhere in the world except for the uk and ireland you know they have walking trails in england pubs come on man where's your soul well let's take a look at what happens in the ritual obviously this will be incredibly spoiler heavy so if you haven't seen it and you want to go off and watch it now the film opens with five friends, Phil, Dom, Hutch, Rob and Luke, in a pub, talking about their holiday plans, and failing to agree on anything, as five people usually do. As they head off, Rob suggests hiking in Sweden. 
Luke wants to visit the off-license and Rob goes in with him. Should we say here that an off-license is a liquor store? Don't you think that when we meet up it's actually getting harder now to have a good time? And also, as many parallels will be coming up that we uh, see them being very much the normal archetypal investigators, the fact that they can't agree on anything right from the start pretty much sets the tone, I think. The way that they don't agree is, is quite interesting. It's These people are all, what, in their, you know, say, mid-30s? Yeah, all, uh, they're, yeah, they're all friends from university, and, and it's subtext in this, and it's, it's text in the book. What's happened is, you know, they've sort of grown up, they've got responsibilities, they now sort of see themselves as adults, and initially they're sort of suggesting very laddish ideas to go off uh, for holiday, and it's sort of, you know, oh, hang on, no, we're a bit too old to do that now, mm. and they're, they're sort of struggling with being on that cusp between being too mature to do all the things they used to enjoy when they're young, but not necessarily wanting to settle into the middle-aged holidays. Yeah, they're very laddish, blokey blokes. Yeah. They discover the offie the off-licence, is being robbed. Yeah, someone failed their party lock roll, didn't they? Luke hides and Rob is caught in the open. The thieves demand Rob's wedding ring. He refuses, as you do. So he gets beaten to death, as Luke watches from behind a rack. There's something that will scar you for life. We cut to Luke waking up in a tent six months later. The four survivors have gone to northern Sweden, following the Kungsleden, or King's Trail, to place a memorial for their dead friend Robert in the form of a cairn. Rob would have loved this place. He's a good man. The best of us. They camp there at that site overnight, and the following day they uh, start walking back to the lodge where they've got rooms. However, as they're doing so, Dom twists his knee, steps in a rabbit hole or something like that. Ah! Oh, oh, it's twisted. It's twisted. Ah! All right, yep. Oh, easy, ah! easy. While he can limp afterwards, when someone points out that it's going to be about a 40-hour walk back to the lodge, he basically says, you know, I, I'm not going to be able to do that. So Hutch consults their map and uh, sees that there is a potential shortcut through the woods. Look, we go southwest through here. We cut the journey in half. Or through the forest. Yeah, why not? Why the hell would they walk 14 hours? Why couldn't they just pick somewhere like an hour down the trail where it was easy to get to, where if they ever wanted to go back and pay their respects, they could do it easily later? Because because it's a hiking holiday, they were hiking. You know, you know, hiking doesn't involve just walking out for an hour to the nearest place. Hiking involves walking for days. Hiking for me is about half a fucking hour going up the track. I wouldn't go any further than that. <laughs> yes, Matt, <laughs> yes. I am... <laughs> After walking through the woods for a while, the group find the gutted body of an elk hanging between trees, still dripping blood. They move on quickly in case there's a bear nearby. And having been out in the woods up in North Carolina where I was looking perpetually around thinking, there's a bear, there's a bear behind every goddamn tree, I can feel their fear. <laughs> the weather turns bad towards dusk, and the group have still not found their way out of the woods. As they discuss camping, they notice the surrounding trees have strange signs carved upon them. Some kind of runes. But happily, nearby, they spot an abandoned house. Well, they're not sure it's abandoned at first, but they go up and, and it shows every sign of, of having been abandoned. Uh, there's a bit of debate about what to do, but they kick the door in and break in to get shelter from the storm that is building up around them. As they enter, I look, hears the sound of something strange moving in the woods, this, this animalistic cry, and scurries inside. You know this is again setting the tone when it comes up with a line like This is clearly the house we're going to get murdered in. <laughs> because inside the house, it's creepy and derelict. 
Phil heads upstairs to look for stuff to burn in the stove and finds a rustic temple. Yeah, as you do. Yeah. Although, thinking it was made of straw, that would have been perfect material to start and, uh, start and set fire to. You could have had this burning effigy all night. Yeah, I think it was twigs rather than straw, but yeah, it still would have gone up nicely. Yeah, yeah, Great it, was basi- yeah <laughs> it was basically kindling. Divine kindling. Yeah. It's almost like the GM saying, look, here's what you can burn down the house with. It's right upstairs. <laughs> And indeed, as the others look at the temple, Luke says we should probably burn this place down when we leave. They're obviously investigators. Although if they wouldn't have stayed the night before they burnt it down, they'd have just burnt it down. Well, you guys would. <laughs> the way the effigy looks, its, um, it's centrepiece is what appears to be a headless man with antlers for hands. That's just screaming in Golanak, really. No head. <laughs> Strange shit on the hands. Well, we do actually understand why it looks like that later on in the film. Oh, yeah, that, that's later. Yes. But yeah, it does look creepy as hell. Despite all these screaming warning signs, the four of them decide, yeah, okay, we'll bed down in here. Luke has a dream in the house in which he walks out of the house and into the off-licence. Don't you think that when we meet up it's actually getting harder now to have a good time? Because every Swedish wood needs an off-licence in the middle of the woods. The shop breaks apart and he finds himself in the woods. Uh, The creature calls in the distance. Luke sees blood on his shirt, the pattern of claw marks carved into his chest. Inside, Hutch and Dom are screaming and crying from nightmares. Hutch has pissed himself in terror. Phil is upstairs, apparently praying for the effigy, naked but asleep. Yeah, I, I think that's quite a creepy scene when he wakes up and sort of, you know, what have I been doing? Why have I been doing this? Mm. And that, I think, was one of the more affecting bits in the entire film. The dawn has come. They all decide to head off again. Dom spots a path going through the woods. I mean, the rest of them aren't sure that it's heading in the right direction, but Dom argues that it's better to follow a path and end up somewhere than just end up wandering around uh, through the woods lost. There's a bit of an argument, but the others follow along. As Dom's inability to walk forces a break, Luke scouts the top of a nearby ridge. Hearing sounds of movement, he sees something large coming through the trees. Luke runs back to warn the others. Their fear brings tensions to a head. Dom accuses Luke of being responsible for this situation as he let Rob die back in the off-licence. Luke punches Dom in the face. <laughs> yeah, I, th- this, this is something that ends up being a much bigger deal in the book because I, it's almost glossed over in this, but I think the way it's handled in the book is a bit better. It's that moment where one friend punches another in the face and you sort of realise that everything has changed. The friendship has changed. It's never going to recover from that stage. Your entire dynamic has changed. It didn't seem that big a deal in the film. No, it didn't. Whereas, no. you know... It, it, it seemed is... like they resort to that. That's their first resort, not their last resort. Yeah, whereas it's something egregious. is a pivotal event in the book. So still not out of the woods, all four of them decide to camp again as it's getting dark. Uh, Dom's leg is growing worse and worse and worse, and Phil now is having problems with blisters because he did not break his boots in properly. He got these very expensive memory foam boots, and it just did not occur to him that you know you have to break boots in before you walk life across the country. Break boots in that's a load of old bollocks. Well, his his life ended up being yeah. too short for that reason. All the gear, no idea. <laughs> <laughs> Having a little conversation, uh, Hutch and Luke decide between them that Luke should head off on his own the following morning while Hutch looks after the others who, you know, patently aren't going to get very far on foot. You know, when it sounds like a good idea, something is bound to come along and throw a spanner in the works. Later that night, Luke is in his tent. He hears something large moving through the camp. He looks out to see the off-licence. Again, now partly overgrown, though. 
where Rob is being murdered again. The poor guy just keeps getting killed and killed and killed through this. He can't get a break, can he? Nah. Hutch's tent is suddenly pulled up into the trees. Waking, Luke hears Phil screaming. Hutch's tent is in bloody ribbons. There is no sign of Hutch. They hear the creature and a man screaming in the darkness. The others look for Hutch, but get lost. Yeah, and this is a fairly big point. The fact that they've wandered off, they've abandoned their camp, they've abandoned all their supplies uh, looking for Hutch, and you know, they, they just you know, don't end up finding these things again. Uh, they wander around in the darkness, and eventually the sun comes up. And this ends up being a fairly big point. I mean, they wander around in the darkness, but they don't end up finding their camp again. Eventually the sun comes up. What they do find in the light, however, is the eviscerated body of Hutch hanging from a tree. They, like true investigators, loot the body, and missing their tents in the map, they carry on regardless, looking for a way out of the woods. Towards dusk, Luke climbs a ridge and spots the edge of the forest. Huzzah! When he returns, Phil is looking around with a torch, saying that he heard something. As Luke approaches, the creature grabs Phil and pulls him into the woods, screaming. Luke flees, but runs into a tree. He finds himself back in the off-licence again. Now fully overgrown, watching Rob die again. Don't you think that when we meet up, it's actually getting harder now to have a good time? Shaking this off, he finds Dom hiding behind a tree. The two agree to make a run for it. There is a point where you can only really use the same visual gag before it becomes repetitive and dull and we honestly don't give a shit. I think we're past that point, yeah. <laughs> I did like the fact that every time you see the off-licence, the, the forest has encroached on it a bit more, and it's this this blending of the two worlds that, you know, you've got this this nightmarish dream realm that's being conjured in people's minds, but the, the real world around them is intruding more and more and taking it over. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was quite a nice motif. I mean, if it had been exactly the same each time, I'd, I'd agree. But I think the mm -hmm. fact that it was changing, that it was a dynamic thing reflecting, you know, the, the the balance within them i thought actually worked quite well i think three times would have been enough though this this yeah. turns up too many times yeah no i'll go along with that just felt from the very outset it was like really heavy-handed the whole off license thing anyway and it's interesting to say you note that you say it was added into the film oh yeah none, 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 none of that's in the book yeah yeah well, Luke and Dom flee through the woods full pelt and they find a path. They saw a path earlier that was marked by these burnt out tree stumps or torches. And this time the tree stumps or torches are actually lit. They follow the path and they see Phil's body hanging from a tree above them. They carry on running because they can see a small settlement ahead of them. And they run there to one of the wooden houses, burst through the door and just collapse inside. Mm -hmm. Inside the house... A figure is praying at a stone altar. I've upgraded from kindling to stone now. Listening to a recording of a shamanic chant. Someone hits Luke over the back of the head and all goes dark. Sadly, they're still alive. And when Luke <laughs> awakes, <laughs> he and Dom are chained, lying in a wooden hut. They hear guttural chanting from the floor above. Luke looks through a crack in the wall, clearing it out a bit, and he sees some people outside building some kind of wooden structure. He and Dom look for a way to escape, but I mean, they're, they're chained up. Uh, three villagers come into the room and interrupt their, their efforts. You know, one of the things I would have thought would have come up is that they're in a pretty dark room. They've just knocked a hole through the wall with this glaring beam of light that comes down <laughs> that comes down through them, cutting through the uh, the dim gloom. Do they make any point of covering it up? No. Do they even acknowledge it? No. Do they question how they've been able to do this? Nope. What the fuck? 
Well, they, they were chained up fairly loosely. They had freedom of movement, and I'm not sure what advantage clearing that little gap in the wall gave them. Um, I mean, you know, obviously, you know, Luke could see what was going on outside, but you know, I get the impression from you know the things that follow that the villagers wanted him to be able to do that. So, you know, why, why would they be at all bothered? I'd be more worried about someone knocking a hole in my wall. Well, it wasn't knocking a hole in it. These are kind of wooden uh, wooden huts made up of uh, logs. And it wasn't... Um, it's more the stuff in between the logs that you yeah, knocked yeah. a hole through. Yeah, yeah. yes. But even so, that's still you're damaging my property, bitch. <laughs> well, compared to what's coming up, that's pretty minor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was a, a minor foreshadow. An old woman, insert creepy old witch, examines Luke. She sees the claw pattern on his chest and reveals her older scars to him. The implication is that he has been chosen by the god as a worshipper. You mean the first female character in the film? I'm sure there were some extras in the uh, in the bar. Really? <laughs> no. no. <laughs> the woman's brutish companions grab Dom and beat him and drag him outside. The chant comes from upstairs again, mixed with Dom's screams. A younger woman comes in and tells Luke in broken English that they are preparing for a sacrifice. So suddenly, two female characters in the space of one scene. I know, it's madness. <laughs> a bit later, the two brutes drag the now semi-conscious Dom back in, battered and bloodied. Dom, in a conversation with Luke, reveals that the nightmare he had had in the house when they were all screaming earlier was that he was being sacrificed by these particular people in this place. And he now accepts that he's going to die. Making his peace with this, he asks Luke to do a few important things, to escape, to tell Dom's wife what happened to him, and most importantly, to burn the fucking place down. Spot the investigator's last request. The villagers drag Dom outside at dusk, tying him to the wooden structure. He sees old corpses dangling in the trees all around. The stake faces the path through the forest. The villagers call for Moda. 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 It's almost like uh, you just have to say it with a Scottish accent and it suddenly turns into murder. <laughs> they kneel as they hear her cry. Luke, watching through the crack in the wall, dislocates his thumb to break free of the ropes. Dom, tied to the stake, sees his wife coming through the forest towards him. She places her hands on his face in a, a sort of loving, gentle way. But then he hears the cackling sound of the creature coming from her. And the illusion drops away. He can see the creature in front of him, its hideous face pressed up to his. And then it just drags him off the stake, hauls him up to a tree and impales him on it. One to go! Back in the shack, the young woman brings uh, Luke some food. He asks what the creature is and she tells him it is a... Jotun. That's the word. A godlike giant, a bastard offspring of Loki that grants its worshippers the ability to live beyond natural life. Did anybody get why the monster appears as the guy's wife? It's not like it's charming him to sort of stay there. It just seemed like a pointless yeah, manifestation. Because it's a horror film. Oh, because it's a horror <laughs> film. But, yeah, I mean, the, but the he creature. was tied up anyway, so he's not. he can't run away. 
That's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, the creature seems to exist both simultaneously in the waking and the dream world and seems to sort of manifest people's dreams or, you know, they cause people to experience their dreams as they're waking. I got the impression that, you know, it wasn't so much that it was trying to trick him. It's just that this was what was triggered in Dom's mind by its presence. You know, if you sort of think about it in the same way that Cthulhu sends out maddening dreams and these inspire different things in different people's minds, this was more Dom's reaction to the reality dislocating presence of, if, of this creature. If it's got that ability to appear as his wife, it could have appeared as his wife earlier and like taken him in the woods without, rather than appearing as some massive elk monster. Maybe it likes appearing as a massive elk monster. You're very so. judgmental, Paul. <laughs> yeah. I thought you were just reading far too much into this, Scott. I just thought it was because the, uh, the director wanted to throw yet another horror trope in. <laughs> I, I, I think that is probably more likely, but yeah, I, 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 think so. I, I, I think I came up with a nice piece of fan wank there and I'm sticking to it. <laughs> I'm buying Matt's explanation there. <laughs> the woman tells Luke that he is to be initiated. If he kneels before the god, he will be granted life. Otherwise, it will hang him in the tree. <laughs> Fair <laughs> it's enough. A, it's kind of a good alternative, really, isn't it? <laughs> now, I took this woman perhaps to be earlier on, we, we didn't mentioned this but they found a tent sort of half buried and a passport of somebody who had been there in 1974 on a credit card that that was one of my favorite spooky moments of the film that was good they kind of pulled it up out of the ground i thought they were going to pull a body up but i thought maybe that was this woman oh yeah because there's a kid in the photograph isn't there the daughter but um and you're you're talking about the younger woman are you yeah yes yeah because she's probably in her um i guess 30s Yeah, Yeah, no, no, except it it could have been the kid in the photograph and it could be that without any unnatural uh, effects on ageing. So, of course, having got out of his bonds, as soon as the woman leaves him alone, Luke sneaks out of the room. He creeps out and he sort of sees some of the villagers lurking outside the door of the hut, the main door outside. So instead of that, he decides to go upstairs where all the creepy chanting is coming from. But, of course, he's, he's not completely foolish. He finds a flaming brand and decides to take that up with him for light. Well, <laughs> but, but not just light, as we'll find out. <laughs> of course, just before he goes upstairs, Luke does what any good investigator would do when confronted by the witch coming through the front door, who just looks at him. By a frail old lady, you mean? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, the witch, the evildoer, the, <laughs> the, mag- the magical hoodoo priestess of the, uh, of the whole camp. He punches her in the face. He, he drops her in one go. <laughs> nice bit of granny battering. Yeah. Look, <laughs> then he heads upstairs with his flaming brand. As he enters the upstairs room, the chanting stops. It's almost as if they've got a switch on the door. <laughs> he sees several mummified bodies seated, dressed in robes. They start to twitch and groan. They're not dead. They are, as we've uh, hinted at, the example of prolonged life. So Luke does what any good investigator would do. He sets them on fire. It almost seems like an accident with the first one, but then he just casually just rubs his burning brand up against them and they go up like torches. Yeah, th- this isn't him running around screaming, going, oh, the horror or anything like that. He's just sort of calmly... He, he takes one look at this and there's a sort of fuck this shit moment and he just calmly walks around with the brand. Right, you're on fire, you're on fire, you're on fire. Burn. Right, I'm out of here. Bye. Burn, burn, burn. <laughs> Seeing the fire, the villagers raise the alarm. The creature comes out of the woods and they grovel before it. Luke finds an axe, a gun and some ammunition while they're distracted. With the fire taking hold upstairs, he is forced to flee the building, killing a villager on the way. 
but there's plenty more where they came from. The creature is waiting at the door, devouring the young woman. The creature backs off a bit, and Luke runs outside. There, silhouetted in the firelight, we get our first proper look at the creature, and it is this large elk-like thing, skeletal, monstrous. It's able to walk on two legs or four, it's on four legs at this stage. It's probably about the size of an elephant. We also see its head. At first looks like, you know, something elkish with with horns. And then we realise that that thing that we saw is as a headless torso with with antlers for hands in the attic of the the house earlier was in fact a representation of this thing's head. Mm. Now, when I first watched this, I thought there was a, a disparity between how you'd seen it glimpsed in the trees earlier compared to how you then saw it silhouetted by the fire. I thought it had miraculously shrunk from being this almost skyscraper-tall building-sized thing that could walk in parallel height to the trees around it, and suddenly it's, it's this elephant skeletal thing that you can see that's a burning barn is bigger than it it just seemed a massive shift in how it had been glimpsed previously yeah but but when we see it in in this shot it's hunched over it's on four legs and you know later on we see this thing rearing up to its full height on two legs and i mean it's not just moving from two legs to four there seems to be a sort of unfurling that's going on we see the torso stretch out we see other arms in there and this thing is fucking massive not your average elk. No. <laughs> no. Mercifully, <laughs> no. So Luke, our stout investigator, does what any PC would do. He shoots it. Which pisses it off, unsurprisingly. So he runs for his life, fleeing down the forest path, lit by the fluorescent lights of the off-license. Don't you think that when we meet up, it's actually getting harder now to have a good time? Flanked by shelves of booze. He doesn't even stop to grab a drink. He I just know. keeps on running. I, yeah, in that situation, <laughs> wouldn't you at least grab a bottle of vodka? Well, maybe not vodka, but... Uh. Oh, a nice gin, maybe. Uh, something. <laughs> the creature catches Luke and forces him to his knees in supplication. Luke sees Rob's body lying off to one side. Again! <laughs> again, yeah. Obviously. But there seems to be a catalyst, and uh, Luke finds his spine and stands up again. And he takes the axe that he's been carrying around with him and strikes the creature in the head with it. This, of course, because this is a fucking great god thing, doesn't kill it, but it does at least buy him a bit of time. And he uses that to run for his life. He makes it out into an open field. And there he finds that the creature will not actually pass the tree line. He's out there in the field. The creature comes to the edge of the trees and looks at him and sort of howls and rages in frustration. Luke uh, looks back at it and starts making similar noises back at it, howling at it in return in a sort of mixture of pain and triumph. And in our glorious, action-packed, really uplifting moment of uh, the fast, the last scene of the film, he walks limping, he walks off limping. <laughs> I was it. waiting for some sort of jump scare ending or twist, but no, he just wanders off. Yeah, he just live. He just yeah, pisses off, and that's it. Done. Yeah. Well, this is clearly the house we'll get murdered in. So let's take a quick look at how the book compares with the film. There were a lot of changes to the original book to translate it into a film, and I understand why they did most of them. I mean, the film uh, is is ninety four minutes long, and the book is you know, something like four hundred and fifty pages. So we, obviously they had to compress an awful lot in there. 
they, they also made a few changes to sort of externalise some of the conflicts. So, for example, in the book, Bob, uh, or Rob, rather, is not a character. He, he doesn't exist. There is no killing in the off-licence. You know, the, 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 the He's not really a character in the film, is he? He exists for 30 seconds yeah. and then just gets brutally killed. But but none of that occurs in the book. Uh, the right. book starts off with you know these four friends already out on uh, on their hike. Um, you know, it starts off with them making the decision to make that shortcut because of uh, of Dom's knee. I guess the reason why they did this for the film, uh, as I said, was was to try to provide some kind of external version for why the uh, the characters were tense with each other, because it's much more sort of subtext and subtle in the book that the reason why these four people are at each other's throats at the wrong time is because, you know, as I mentioned before, you know they're now in their mid-30s, they're friends from university, and they're sort of discovering that they don't have as much in common as they thought. Luke, in particular, you know, has, I think, got a part-time job in a record shop, and he's living in a flat he's unmarried uh, you know, a couple of the others have got fairly successful careers and what are apparently happy families and there's some resentment there and the other you know he feels the others are looking down on him and they, you know, there's a degree of that actually being true but at the same time you know we find out later that for example dom's marriage is imploding and that, that his wife is is suing him for divorce and he's sort of resenting uh, luke's freedom at this stage and this is why the two of them retreat each other's throat all the way through and did it have any impact in the book? Because in the film, oh, yeah. they're at each other's throats a bit. There's a bit of animosity. But then there's a big scary monster. So all that stuff is totally irrelevant. It has no impact on anything, I don't well, think, in the I, film. Well, like I said, I mean, matter. the book takes place over a much longer period. And, but what it means is that the degree of trust that would have sort of helped them support each other is, is eroding all the way through. Yeah, I, I, certainly it didn't work for me anywhere near as well. I mean, I, I did like the fact that you you did get this dream imagery of the sort of decaying uh, off-licence. But, um, yeah, I agree, it was overused too much and ultimately didn't work for me as well as the book did. And there's some reference in the book to some heavy metal band members being yeah. part of the cult, which sounds a lot more fun than what we see in the film. I mean, they should have brought those guys in who won the uh, Eurovision Song Contest. Oh, the audio. Were they, yes. were they? No, they were Finnish. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, they, well, had... they should have said it in Finland then and had them. They had their own film, though, didn't they? Yeah, um, D- Dark Floors or something like yeah, that. Yeah, I remember yeah. it being some crazy structure that almost went on forever and there was just more nightmarish stuff happening from one floor to the next. I've only ever seen the trailer for it, but it looked quite a, quite a nice little romp. No off-licenses either, so... Yeah, they're, the cult at the end of the book is very different. I mean, the whole setup is a bit different. You've got Luke, who is not in anywhere near as good a physical or mental state by the time he, he makes it to the settlement. Uh, for a start, I mean, he's running a fever, he's dehydrated, he's hallucinating wildly. You've got him and Dom. Uh, at some point, he doesn't even notice when Dom is taken by the creature. He's on his own when he wanders into the settlement. And I say settlement is is just a house in the book. The house is occupied by an old woman who's very much like the old woman in in the film. And these two kids, in their late teens, early 20s, who are members of this black metal band uh, called Blood Frenzy, they've latched onto this existing cult and they've sort of seen it as a way of being cartoonishly evil in that black metal way of sort of embracing all the things that they're not supposed to be you know satanic white nationalists uh you know tapping into old uh sort of nordic pagan traditions and and they're fans of the black goat of the woods 
This is another big change. The book is a little more subtly Lovecraftian. The creature is referred to as the Black Goat of the Woods. Again, they call her mother in that as well. But in that context, calling her mother you know, is, is perhaps you know, a bit more explicitly Lovecraftian. On top of that, I mean, when uh, Luke encounters the shriveled, mummified creatures up in the attic, I mean, they're, they're small, goatish things, and they have hooves for feet. But I think the thing that worked best for me in the book compared to this is the fact that there is much more of a sense of threat and menace about being lost in the woods. You know, you have scenes in it where, because of Phil's blisters and Dom's bad knee, they're getting slower and slower walking through the woods. Luke, at some stage, has realised that, you know, full pelt, they can probably make it out of the woods in, you know, a day, but it's probably going to take about three days at the rate they're walking. Uh, he, he feels guilty about the idea of leaving them behind, so he doesn't want to do that, so he's been slowed down by them. But at the same time, he realises that they just don't have enough food and water, and they're going to start getting weak and, and sick as a result of this. And it's that horror, that sort of cold calculation at some stage of of looking at their resources and just sort of thinking, you know, we can hope, we can wish as much as we want, but this just isn't going to work. So now let's take a look at what we can steal for gaming from the ritual. Well, there's the simple terror of being lost among the, the woods amidst, you know, these supernatural forces. I mean, this is something we see in a lot of horror films. And uh, I mean, we but were talking a little bit about it in, in our uh, survival horror episode last time of how to make that, that sense of isolation and dealing with the elements in addition to other horrors, how to make that augment the horror of your game. It's quite difficult to communicate that fear and terror that one gets at being literally lost, like in, like in woods, because woods are very good for getting lost in, mm-hmm. because... That you you can't see any distant landmarks. You know you find yourself going in circles. You hit thorny patches and rivers and things. It's very and, and, and they're dark lost. as well. And yeah, how does one get that feeling of of distress into people? You know, sat around a, a gaming table. Yeah, I'm just one. saying, make a navigate roll doesn't really cut it. No, but I, mean, I think any threatening environment, whether it be woods or whether it be the Antarctic, as with Beyond the Mountains of Madness. It's difficult to constantly reinforce the threat yeah. of the environment. Yeah, I mean, what you tend to have to do, I think, you know, particularly in, say, you know, an environment like Beyond the Mountains Madness or Walking in the Wastes, where it's a deadly cold climate, is perhaps have particular set scenes where you're, you're reminded of just what some of the dangers in this environment are. I mean, yeah, I mean, you describe things like the cold and the snow every now and then to get keep them in people's minds. But, you know, every now and then you do have, say, you know, something like uh, a crevasse opening up or... And, and probably when they do make rolls if they have to make pushed rolls then have the consequences of those pushed rolls somehow bring back the environment you know yeah. the, the terror of the environment you're fleeing from something you you know you you fell a roll you smack into a tree as we see a guy in here or it's one of those instances because it's such an all-pervasive thing that should be at their forefront all the time because they are constantly in that mm. environment that i'd really advocate using background sound effects that so, would help, yeah. I think, yeah, mm. yeah. Yeah, so having things like the howling of the wind over the ice or um, the sound of woodland out there, whether it be uh, slow brook trickling by or campfire sounds or just wind rustling through trees, something that is constantly on in the background. That's a good yeah. idea. Yeah, and, and you can find those on the internet. You can find oh, like, loads background of loops. Yeah. 
Yeah. And every now and then get a handful of pine needles and throw them in the players' faces. Yeah, you, t- you get someone to turn the lights off first, then you throw them. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah that works. <laughs> I and mean, one of the things I liked in this is that, um, yeah, something we see quite a lot in Call of Cthulhu, and I think, again, it worked better in the book than it did in the film, was this idea of, of traditional folklore being a sort of mask or a layer over something more eldritch. That you had this idea that this is, you know, the spawn of Loki or this giant out of Nordic mythology, but that what is, is behind that legend is something altogether more alien, something more inexplicable. One of the things I, sp- I like in games a lot is where cultists don't necessarily have the whole picture. They have a picture that they think is complete, but when they take a step back and think, oh yeah, there's actually quite a few holes here, that they have a very skewed, a very distorted, a very incomplete view of what the hell is actually going on. Uh, there's a scene in the film fairly early on when one of the characters finds themselves sleepwalking, but sleep praying to the uh, to the effigy, to the god. And one can imagine this could be the result of a failed sanity roll as a delusion or, a, you know, just the outcome of a, a failed sanity roll. And one of the other players comes up and finds them, you know, knelt before the idols, praying to it and worshipping it. But then when they come round, when they sort of regather their senses, they don't know why they were there or what they were doing. Um, it's almost as if they were possessed or coerced in some way to do it. Well, I think it's creeper in this case in that you know, it doesn't really tie in with the idea of a Call of Cthulhu sanity roll. They've seen a few creepy things, but nothing that would perhaps unhinge him at that stage. I mean, this is the first indication that we see in the film that this creature is more than just you know, a big, scary monster, that it has the ability to affect minds, it has the ability to affect reality. And you know, it's almost deciding, right, you, know, you will worship me, and any time you let your guard down you're it's drawing you into its worship except it wasn't seeking worship was it, it was just gutting them and hanging them in the tree uh well except those it's, were it's offerings yeah worship from one of them yes but yeah, the, the people it happy just to slaughter exactly yeah but you know again i thought that was that was quite creepy in the film that you know out of the four of them one of them had been chosen it's sort of right you know you're mine i'm going to mark you and it's almost like it had sort of tested the water with phil early on and he'd failed then you get Luke going outside and he's marked and it's sort of, oh yeah, actually I don't need that one anymore. I've, I've got my worshipper now. The rest of you are now mine to play with. It's almost like the gods playing Pokemon. I choose you! But not <laughs> yeah. you, not you, and not you. Die. Yeah. <laughs> that idea of, of a god choosing you as its worshipper, I don't think I've seen that in Call of Cthulhu before. I, I think that would be quite a terrifying thing because one of the things that you know we get in Call of Cthulhu is the idea that most of the time, with the exception perhaps of Nyarlathotep and some of the other smaller gods, that you know the, the gods are pretty much oblivious to the fact that we're there. They were, mm. were completely unimportant. How terrifying is it if one of them takes a personal interest in you? Now, there is definitely a parallel here between the likes of the Big C, um, the Big Cthulhu, comprised with the kind of ripping out of dreams or nightmares of its victims and then broadcasting it back at them. There is definitely this use of dream that is very... very almost, almost like uh, Glacky as well, to a degree, because he's got mm. the dream call. That it's very Lovecraftian. Yeah, I, and and the fact that you know the the gods seem to use elements out of people's own fears, out of their minds, out of their own mm. dreams, and sort of weave those into its own reality. Yeah, yeah. again, I think that's that's quite an unnerving thing because it gives you the, the effect of delusions in Call of Cthulhu again, w- without even having to rely on madness. There's just this insidious influence getting into your brain. 
I think it's something that would work either if you were running this as a probably a one-shot or two-shot um, adventure, that you do it with an existing group of characters after something's horrible happened to them in a previous adventure or maybe even two adventures, because you can rip those previous post-traumatic moments that they've experienced as investigators and then drop them back in, mm. this, new, in this new context. Oh, that yeah. will be a nice piece of reincorporation and add a lot of weight to it, rather than just being this one bloody off-license that you see at the beginning of the film and then <laughs> yeah. keep seeing again and again and again. It's yeah. also something that should be used very sparingly for, this, for it to have most impact. Like stuff that's been written in to pre-gens in a Call of Cthulhu game. Yeah. I think it's an object lesson on how not to do it because mm -hmm. it's just irrelevant to what actually happens in the game. So you've got this stuff in your background and, oh, I'm supposed to make something of the fact that I was a coward and didn't defend my friend and the other guys, oh, I'm supposed to make something of, you know, that guy didn't defend my friend. And then the shit happens in the woods and that, yeah, so that's all pretty irrelevant and to try and bring that in is really shoehorning stuff in. If you're going to have stuff in the background either like you say have it from a previous thing the players and the player characters have experienced or have it such that the things in their backgrounds actually manifest in the game and you know when i say manifest they're actually there in the real world you know there's some character from their background that is in the cult yeah so it's something that has a tangible effect on them because especially with the last instance where and the last time we see the off-license, all he does is run past it. There's yeah. no effect apart from being no, asked no, a nice bit of set dressing. Oh, I, I, actually, no, I, I disagree with that. I mean, I think it serves a thematic purpose in the film that um, you know, you, you've got, look at that stage who was being forced down before the god, you know, that, that whole, you know, you are mine, you will pray to me bit. And as he's being forced down, he's lying there and he looks across and he sees Rob dying there one more time. And this is sort of the moment that breaks him out of his cowardice. This is sort of, I've been passive for too long, I've let these things happen. And that's the point at which he finds the strength to stand up and, and hit the got in the head with the axe and so I, th I think it does actually serve a purpose i mean it, i think it's badly handled but i can understand why they did that i think yeah you know, I, I can see the purpose it serves in the story that's the only instance where it does do anything other than be set dressing that up until then it's just yeah the stuff's happening on screen and then he wakes up or then he sees the real world again it doesn't have a real impact upon him I think if it had more of an impact, if something physically happened to him, maybe reality started blurring with, with the dream a bit more, then again, it would have been something that actually had more of a use and more poignancy. Instead, it's just, hey, look at the pretty lights again. Meanwhile, on social media... Now we have a new review, not this time on iTunes, on something called podchaser.com. The what now? I know. Mordrigan reviewed us on podchaser.com, saying, Dealing with all forms of horror, but mostly the Cthulhu mythos, this podcast is a must for all horror fans. So, yeah, thank you, Mordrigan. And um, we do tend to focus on iTunes because the tools we have alert us when we get reviews on iTunes. But it, it's finally occurred to me to go out and look in other places. And so those of you who have left reviews elsewhere, I'll try to find them. But if, if you do leave a review in a, a podcast aggregator or something that you, you don't think we might normally look at, if you want to send a link to us, I mean, we, we'd love to know about it. Indeed, over on RPG Now, Cthulhu Bob has something to say. He says, I love these. As long as no one's here to notice me trying to join the conversation, then realising they can't actually hear me. But we can hear you, Bob. We hear every word you say. We're there with you all the time. We control the horizontal and the vertical. 
He, he continues, These are kindred spirits. Sound like probably great people. And I love the informal, real feel of the podcast format. We have real feel, Matt. Hang on a minute. I'm also probably a great peer person. I, I, I want that on my tombstone. I think it's the nicest thing anyone said about me. <laughs> So anyway, thank you very much, Cthulhu Bob. Yeah, thank you very much. I, and, and thank you to anyone who's left a review for us anywhere. I mean, these things you know, help get the word out. They help attract new listeners to the show. Uh, and they give our egos nice little boosts. And we've had some feedback about our episode on the last Feast of Harlequin. From Anthony Adams over on G+. We'll keep the academic studies of clowns to myself this time. But this entire topic is a very rich one for gaming. From the research angle, anthropological in this case, to the religious and cultural tropes of the Feast of Fools, to the brisk delight of fall travel, to the corn dolls and dancing of the Native American Southwest, to the gruesome sense of doubling that is alluded to in the tale. And this comment has intrigued me, I think, more than any other single comment that, that I've seen on Google+. Anthony's sort of hinted at this before, the fact that you know, his, his uh, work as an academic has led him to do an academic study of clowns. Anthony, you are a Cthulhu investigator, aren't you? You, you just are. This is where we find the last feast of the Harlequin was actually an autobiography. <laughs> We should have our own investigator organisation. I mean, we're collecting a few oh, now. Oh, yeah. I mean, we definitely want Frank for muscle. Yeah. 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 This is the man that we know can wrestle a dark young. Yeah. D6 damage bonus. <laughs> <laughs> I think Frank's probably got two D6. <laughs> and as we've spoken before, we've got CJ, the paranormal investigator, author of the Parapsychologist's Handbook. Yeah. So, yes, yes, uh, we, we have a rich cast of investigators to call upon. We, and, we'll and, sit at home and send them missions, obviously. <laughs> well, <laughs> We're like, not getting involved. No, no I, think, I think it's more like at some point you will be called upon to investigate our deaths. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, I just like the idea of being the, um, being the guy in the corner of the cocktail bar that then hands you a mission. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's no, on no. the inn. We've updated this to the 21st century. No, I, I, I think, guys, you know, when we go over to Necronomicon next year, let's go via New York again and book a room in the Hotel Chelsea. Yeah. And also from Forrester Gary on our Google Plus community, he says, If you're going to go full Ligotti, you'll definitely want to read Teatro Grotesco. Teatro Grotesco, I think, is probably the single best collection that he's done. So, yeah, if, if you're going to investigate Ligotti, and uh, you know, perhaps if, if The Last Feast has, has whetted your appetite, that's the book to go for. I just like the full Ligottis in quotation marks. <laughs> Have you not got that little dial on the side of your head, the one, the one that goes up to 10 and then the next setting is full Ligotti? <laughs> <laughs> it goes up to 11. <laughs> and also from William Adcock on Facebook. In response to Scott's musing on a clown-based soft drink, this bubblegum-flavoured, nauseatingly sweet atrocity exists and is probably exactly as ghastly as you're imagining clown soda would be. This was accompanied by a picture of something called Big Red. Yeah, I don't know about you two. I, I, I mean, despite having lived in the US for a while, I have not experienced Big Red, and now I am terrified of the prospect. I fear somebody might send us a can. <laughs> if, if, if you want to send us a can... <laughs> Scott will drink it on air next oh. show. Oh, God. He'll yeah. chug it down in one. Yeah, well, well, thank you for promising that on my behalf, Paul. <laughs> That's yeah. what you said earlier. I was yeah, just repeating yeah. it. Right. It's fine. Yes. Yeah, yeah. yeah. 
And we did have some fantastic analysis of the story, I mean, really in-depth stuff from Linus Larson, uh, which is way, way, way too long for us to read. I mean, it's like a, a whole episode in itself. So we won't go into that here. But if you're interested in Ligotti and The Last Feast of Harlequin, you should definitely read that thread, and I shall link to it. Then to wrap things up, what are our final thoughts about the ritual? Paul, why don't you kick us off? Okay. <laughs> well, I seem to be the dissenting voice here, although, Matt, you know, your comments through the show seem to be- betray your your views otherwise. But no, I'm, I'm like Statler and Waldorf. I appreciate it and I like to heckle. Okay. Yeah, I thought it was a bit shit. Um, I watched it the other night while I was away and I contacted the guys and said, oh, what's ritual? It was bloody awful. Yeah, talk about survival horror. I nearly died chewing my own arm off is that what you meant by survival horror and they were like hold on did you watch the right one because there's another one with another film of the same name out there and i thought hallelujah maybe i watched the wrong one but no <laughs> apparently i watched the in air quotes right one <laughs> so i mean what was it particularly i mean you've obviously touched on some points throughout the show but what was it particularly that disappointed you about the ritual uh i think yeah, I was pondering this. I think the the cast are pretty dislikable. I didn't think the acting was particularly great. But I don't think one needs a, a likable cast for no. a good horror film at I, all. I, so that's not yeah. really an objection. No, I mean, I agree. This is something I see quite a lot in critiques of books and, and uh, TV shows and, and films particularly. The people saying, oh, yeah, I didn't like this because the characters are unlikable. Yeah. And oh, yeah, I, I find unlikable characters to be quite compelling. Yeah, I guess they weren't compelling, though. They were yeah. just a, quite a group of macho blokey blokes... I think it got it got off to a wrong foot with that bloody off license. Basically, it seemed really heavy-handed. Oh, here's a big emotional hook that you've got to buy into, but they didn't really get license to set that up. They just or, kind of or, or hit you license. over the head. <laughs> yeah, they kind of again literally hit you over the head with it as much yeah. as they hit the character in the show over the head with it. And then the guy's dead, and we're off on a, a march through the woods. We get into the woods and there are strange runes and then there are strange sounds in the woods and then there's a tent that somebody gets whipped out of. If you're going to watch this film, you'd be much better off just go and watch the Blair Witch Project, which does all these things much better. No. Oh, the look oh, on Scott's God. face there. It's like yeah. you declared war. It was, and then <laughs> like, towards the end, there's just two of them left. They're going through and they find the spooky old house in the middle of the woods. Wow, could this be any more ripped off of Blair Witch? Yeah, I, I, I'd like to think of it as a version of the Blair Witch Project where stuff happens, which was very much not the case with the Blair Witch Project. The Blair Witch Project was one of the dullest films I've ever seen. I can only think you must be heavily influenced by having read the book of this. Uh, yeah, I, 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 a lot I, I, of no, your I agree. comments I agree seem to come from the book. Yeah, I no, I, I started out by saying I much prefer the book to the film. I thought I thought the film was okay. Um, I, I didn't hate it anywhere near as much as you did, and I tried to take it, you know, as as its own thing. As I, I mentioned earlier, I understand why they made a lot of the changes to make it more accessible as a film, and I was never expecting to see you know a lot of the stuff that I liked about the book on the screen because it just wouldn't have translated. I found the film to be. All right. Um, I like the build-up of tension in it. I, I, I like some of the scenes in it. I like the way it all ended up. I agree. Yeah, that the the backstory stuff with Rob's death and the off license was incredibly heavy-handed and and very overdone. 
Yeah, if that had been handled with a lighter, defter touch, it would have made for a much stronger film. I'd certainly never call it one of my favourite films, but I call it average. I thought it was all right. It's certainly not a film I disliked, which it it definitely tipped the balance into into that positive for me. There were a couple of characters that I was really rooting for them to die, like whiny <laughs> bastard, stupid. Oh, I've twisted my knee and I can't walk more than five feet. <laughs> Fuck you, die! <laughs> Why that didn't happen earlier, I don't but, know. Matt, having gone out for walks with you before, that's all. <laughs> that, that was you, Matt. Yeah. And I wasn't going through a forest. So. Yeah. We, we had that with you walking through Providence. And you we, nearly, yeah. we nearly left you to die going through Providence, you know, going that hill. So, yeah, next time. Luckily, there was a coffee shop next door. And you could just sit in there. And, um, so you kind of got away lightly. Yeah, but oh god, he was such a whiny bastard. Um, Other than that, actually, of all the things, that really didn't bother me. <laughs> oh, no, the lack it, of impact that had on the film kind of bothered me. But yeah, but uh, there, there were moments of it that I would say I really liked. But it was actually moments that really shone through, and then just either mediocre or downright shit for other bits. But it's like on the whole, it would tip it into being an okay film for me. What I would suggest, though, is if you liked the film or, you know, if you liked you know, certain elements of the film and you haven't read the book, that you, you do go out and read the book. As I keep saying, you know, the film did, did an OK job, but the book did a fantastic job of conveying the horror of being lost in the woods and, and you're fighting for survival in you know, really grim conditions. I mean, as soon as I read that, I knew I wanted to do an episode on survival horror because the, the fight for survival was such a grim, vital part of that. And I kept thinking, how the hell would I do this in the game? Uh, the film did not have that effect on me at all. And 100% less mythos name check. Boom! <laughs> Uh, you're a man of simple requirements, aren't you, Matt? Most of the time. Well, that about wraps up the ritual for me. I think, um, can I be the first one to die if we're going through this film in real life? <laughs> yes, yes, you can, Paul. I kind of hope I, so. I, 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 I think I'll be the guy in the off-license who gets hit over the head. And I'll be like, yes! <laughs> yeah, but you can I can leave. leave this game. I don't have to sit at this table any longer. No, no, we're going to drag you back for every five oh, for the five no! repeat scenes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the GM's like, Paul, you can't go. You've got to relive it. You're in loads of flashback scenes. Yeah. You're oh. there right up to the end. Just roll the dice for me, Scott. I'll, I'm going to the bar. <laughs> Good night. <laughs> See you next time. Hello? BlasphemousTomes.com Don't you think that when we meet up it's actually getting harder now to have a good time?